Hi, and welcome to episode 133 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and I'd like to start off by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording this podcast, the Gadigal people, and pay my respect to elders past and present. Today, I'm bringing you my conversation with Fred Fowler, who I finally caught up with in Melbourne after a long COVID interruption. It seems so weird now that there was that period when the borders were closed and we couldn't get to Victoria from New South Wales, but thankfully that is all over now and it was so good to see Fred in his studio as this interview has been such a long time coming. There is something dreamy about Fred Fowler's paintings. His works are typically oil on wood panel with dozens of colourful shapes scattered across a monochrome background. He plays around with perspective, colour and form, creating this ambiguity which for me really sets my imagination adrift. Some shapes look recognisable, but many others are not discernible as anything in the real world. But somehow it's the colour and materials he uses which evoke a memory. And I think the title of his show with Jan Murphy Gallery in Brisbane earlier this year really encapsulates that. It was called Emotions Abstracted. His roots are in graffiti art and graphic design, but as soon as he went to the Victorian College of the Arts, it became pretty clear to him that his future was elsewhere. He has exhibited in 14 solo shows, and his work is held in the National Gallery of Australia and many private collections. Fred's father is a white Papua New Guinean, and it's art from that country that he would see in his home as a child. He started skateboarding at the age of six, which led later to his interest in graffiti art. But at the age of 17, he had an unpleasant run-in with the police as a result. He then changed tack and studied graphic design before going on to do a postgrad and master's at the VCA. We pick up this conversation where I ask him how he made that initial transition from graffiti art to graphic design. With tags and graffiti, I just saw there was another side that was that you could use spray paint really delicately. And I started cutting these stencils of like women and rappers and and just giving it a light mist. And this tiny little mist, then you take the stencil off and it leaves this really like subtle image of whoever you're painting. And so that's how I sort of moved away from the graffiti and I sort of found that an interesting way to make work. Mm. And then that led into doing a whole bunch of stencils and this was late 90s and then Banksy came to town and it yeah. blew up. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking about Banksy when you said that. So Banksy came along in the early 2000s, did he? Yeah, oh, yeah, he came that? to Melbourne. Yeah, he stayed with a mate of mine. And was he mysterious back then? Yeah, yeah, he only met a couple of dudes. So that stenciling idea, it made you want to explore fine art more in a way? Yeah, I was more interested in the art and the images and trying to say something different than rather than just writing my name over and over again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so the next point, though, was more you, you started basically working in graphic design and doing street art, but I presume street art is like, you know, you, you've got clients that you do the work for and do public works. I think you've, you did public works around the world. Yeah, I did some commissioned public and commercial work, more community stuff, like skate parks, workshops. So you'd come up with the concept and the design and everything and then execute it. Yeah. And because of the background in graffiti, because what you would do is sketch out on a little A4 or a smaller bit of paper, take it with you, go out at three in the morning and then paint it 10 metres wide. So you're used to scaling things up, working in tough conditions, no light. And trying to work fast, I presume. Yeah. And then you would move to actually be doing like sort of legitimate legal stuff. So yeah, they- so then legitimate legal stuff. You've got scissor lifts, you've got people getting paid for you. You're like, oh, piece right. of cake. So, okay, what, were, what made you move to become a full-time painter and making paintings? I always, suppose, just romantically wanted to be like an oil painter like Francis Bacon or Lucian Freud. That was sort of always the dream. Like I sort of fell into graphic design because a mate of mine, 
offered me a job and he was a legend and it was a really fun job. And so I just did that and I was good at it. But then I met my wife, then now wife, and we went to Paris for a year and Europe just to travel, just to get out of Australia, to have an adventure, to see Europe. I'd never been there before. Did lots of painting on the streets all over Europe. My sort of street art stuff, I was still doing that at that time. But this was at a time where I would just take paint and just go out and paint random things. So, And then my wife said, why don't you go to VCA and study art? And I said, VCA? <laughs> Fucking no way. I'm not going to VCA. That wasn't on your radar. Not at all. But then I thought about it and it just sounded like a brilliant idea. I get to go and do my art for two years and get taught by some of the best artists in Australia. And I get two years to work on my art and develop it. And then I applied from Paris, had my interview over there. And then when we got back, I started in postgrad. So did you have to have a portfolio or something? Well, by this time... I'd had several solo exhibitions and work in the National Collection, oh, the NGA. In the National Gallery of Australia. Which was some stencil work. Was that from the Space Invaders exhibition? Yep. And they acquired some of that? Yeah, they acquired a lot of work, hundreds of pieces. Oh, so I suppose it is easier to get into the VCA if you've got work in the National Gallery. <laughs> well, it looked good on the CV and I think, you know, they gave me approval for prior experience yeah that must have been a big boost for your confidence actually to get in yeah it was I mean I think it was a big boost the NGA collection acquiring stencil work because before that we were just working on the streets and it was a completely separate culture to mainstream art Mm. so when the NGA bought all of our work we were like whoa like we're getting recognized by a major institution. Yeah, a major institution. Yeah. It's like, well, it, like we all, like you know, we obviously all believed in it. And that's why we did it. But so, well, actually, let's backtrack a bit because you're saying that you'd had a couple of solo shows already. So, how did they come about? Like before well, you went to VCA, my first one came about in 2001. In the late 90s, I was doing artwork, you know, graffiti and posters and stencils putting it up around the city and i met a woman eva eden who had a gallery in collins street and she offered me a solo show at the age of 20 21 and i was studying graphic art and i sort of thought fuck this is what i want to do and i dropped out of the graphic art course to do the solo show was that stencil work it was stencil work. It was paintings on like big sheets of checker plate metal. It was these big rock carvings that I used to do. Weird right. sort of stuff. So tell me about VCA. What was it like? How, did that change your whole perception and direction? It did. And I was sort of resistant as I was when my wife first suggested I go there. But the first day, the first lecture... Went in, sat down, Bernard Sachs started talking about signifiers and signs and then just put on a Lars von Trier film, The Element of Crime. And I was just like, I'm in the right place. And that was it. And I just, I let my ego go and just made use of the facilities, learned how to cast bronze, learned how to do etchings. I was running around furiously to the sculpture department, to the printmaking department, just trying to learn everything I could. It just opened my mind. Yeah, it was obviously in a huge way. Yeah, and it's obviously the place that you wanted, you needed to be at the time. Yeah, I, I didn't know it, and I was resistant, but it was amazing. And what's can you remember what artists you were looking at back then, like that really sort of appealed to you? One, oh, there are several. One in particular that completely sort of opened my mind up was in a lecture by Norbert Loeffler. He showed this work that Yoko Ono did 
1964 called Cut Pace, where it's a performance work. She sits down on a stage in a black robe or something, puts a pair of scissors on the table and invites the audience to cut pieces of her clothes away. And it just completely blew my mind, like the courage to do that. You know, before that, all I'd known of Yoko Ono was she, like, married John Lennon and broke up the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But Norbert Which said, isn't true, of course. Norbert said her only problem was she married a pop star. And I think about that work nearly every day. Do you think because she's so... What, she made herself really vulnerable? Yeah. And I think that's, like, the essence of... Like, when you're making art, you're really just putting yourself out there bare. The first time I sort of knew I was going to be... Do something visual when... I was 14 and an image came in my head of this guy like standing in a cold alleyway, like warming his hands on a fire with a beanie on and I drew it and it looked like what it was in my head and something clicked and I thought, you're going to do something, like this is what you're going to do. And that's just from your imagination you did that? Yeah. You didn't copy it from No, I'd never done it. I'd never done that before. Like something had never sprung into my head and I could put it onto paper how I saw it. That, that's interesting because you're talking about a representational um, depiction there. And if anybody looks at your work today, we see small irregular shapes with, you know, wide range of colours and patterns and textures. And, you know, at first glance, most people would think, oh, that's an abstract work, it's particularly if there's no horizon line or anything in there. But when you look closer, often there, is, there are objects like plants, animals, buildings. How did you get to that part? Because we were talking earlier about how, you know, you came across this approach. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, I was in the gallery in QAG in Brisbane and I saw a Fred Williams painting and I don't think I'd ever seen one in person. And I walked up to it and it just struck me that that was, I got it, that was the vastness. Like that's what he was depicting, those little dots and splashes of paint with the vastness and I don't think that one had a horizon and I was also like hmm interesting no horizon and just something about the vastness of it just drew me out of the perspective that I had been working in which was more zoomed in faces people and I realized that you could paint about cultures and people and land animals the relationships between different people the relationships between animals native animals invasive animals the sea environmental issues like a whole world just opened up and i thought wow this is like unlocking a door yeah that's really interesting that you can sort of explore so much subject matter in that way yeah it sort of makes sense if you zoom out you get a bigger perspective on where you are so if somebody came up to you and said i think your work is abstract what would you say to that pretty much i mean a lot of artists say i like to leave it open to the interpretation of the viewer but i do like to leave some stuff open to the interpretation because it's like listening to music. You get People get different things out of looking at different objects or symbols. And I'm interested in pattern recognition and stuff like that. So it's interesting how little of something you can detect before people will recognise it as what it is. I saw this study on, little, on some little bird. It's ones like day-old birds that if people held down a paddle pop stick painted yellow and black on the end, they would go to eat like it was their mum. Oh, really? It's just interesting the, the things that the things you can express that you think are abstract and you only you'll get that people totally pick up on it and you think it's hidden and people are like, oh, that's a jail. That's, oh, that guy's in jail. 
or that's a mine or hmm, weird ghost. Or I find also, even if it's like it might be just a green colour with a bit of texture and straight away you think foliage, you know, yeah. or grass. Yeah, you know? or an island. Yeah, exactly. So you don't necessarily try to do that? I mean, that's just something that you're just, it's a subjective thing? It is. I mean, there's lots of elements that are recognisable symbols and I've sort of built up my own little language, my own little, like, guide or like a legend for maps like I've got that in my head and I've got all these symbols that that represents like a mobile phone tower that represents houses that represents um urbanization you know grids that's man-made so I've got all these keys in my head Mm. and I have them written down yeah that's like a shorthand Mm. yeah well you know what else I think about your work when I look at it is that 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 background color and that negative space must be so important when you're thinking about the painting. Are you thinking about it in the, Do you ever think about the negative space as opposed to those elements? Definitely. I mean, I, some of them I plan out to some extent, but some of them are just a huge mess before I come over and edit all the shapes into them and cut back in and find... Like, sometimes I've, I'm finding things as I go. It's such a, such a mess. It's a weird way to work, but it started because I was of the blank canvas, just blank canvas intimidation. And then I worked out that I could make a huge mess and then come back with the color or colors and edit it. And it just took all that anxiety away. And as soon as I get got blank canvases into the studio, the first thing I would do was just like, just get a bit of paint on it so it's not blank canvas. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, you know, with that with that background colour, it's interesting because it's, sometimes it's like a flat colour. Mm. Sometimes you put is a gradated colour and it makes those objects in the painting are totally different. For, for me, when I look at it, depending on the background or the background colour, those, you know, elements are either they might look like they're floating or they might look like they're all on the same plane, mm. or they might look like they're some are further back and some are. So there's this sort of optical illusion element to it as well. Yeah, I like that idea of building up a wall of, it's like a visual wall of sound, and then like layers, layers, and then cutting back. And I listen to a lot of ambient music, like Brian Eno, stuff like that when I'm painting, because I don't like too many lyrics and. I just try and make images that are sort of dreamy that you can sort of come back to and see, see different things. Well, you know, that reminds me of that show that you had only a couple of months ago at Jan Murphy called Emotions Abstracted because that was really interesting to me because you've got this connection between colour and emotion and that's a bit what you're talking about with music as well, that you can get a different emotion from music as you can, like, from colour in a way. And I think with this, I, I was interested to, you know, to read that you said about that, that you're exploring the idea of emotion through colour and that you can have, you can mix together emotions just like you can mix colours together. Um, I just, I was looking to make work that was more emotional and I'd been, since having a baby and... life I just sort of become attracted to more emotion like films and music that really made me feel things emotions things that made me cry like I search out music and films that make me cry all the time I'm constantly crying and I just wanted to try and do something more with more of an emotional Base. I'm not sure how successful that was, but I found this wheel of emotions and I thought that is a brilliant base idea for a show. So like when you say wheel of emotions, you may mean like a colour wheel. Like a colour wheel. So and the thought, opposite emotions will be on the other side of the wheel. Exactly. So like sadness and happiness, for example. Then then they would cross over and there would be something would be made in the middle. Yeah. And the blending of them. And I just thought it would be a pretty show with this 
just range of different colors and depths of colors. So that was just the base of that. Do you feel when you see a color that you feel as an emotion with a certain color? I think, I think it's sort of cerebral. I don't, I think you do sometimes like knowing that they paint police stations, like cool, light blue colors. You sort of, I don't know, being an artist, maybe you are sensitive to stuff like that. It feels cold, a bit colder, feels a bit intimidating when you're in a room that's like slightly cooler or or like a warm natural white is like a little bit more relaxing than being in a slightly ice blue room yeah so yeah i think i think so i agree with that what about black i'm interested in what artists do with black do you ever use black in your paintings yeah yeah i've done some black ones but when i was in europe some of the guys I was doing art with, I noticed that they would never use pure black. They would use eggplants and like super dark purples, super dark browns. And there was this nuance that they didn't like, they weren't so, I don't know, obvious or bold that they would use black, like straight black. Maybe it's a European thing. I try and get as much colour on most paintings as I can and then, <laughs> and then edit it. Like I like little bits of a lot of colours and then I put a grey or something neutral over the top to like take it back. The thing that I think is so successful when you do it though is that it's not chaotic. It's not this sort of mess. You seem to keep it clean or something. There's something crisp about it and clean about it. Is that something that you... Do you think... Are you a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to that sort of thing? Yeah, probably. I mean, you haven't seen them before when they're unfinished. They are hideous. (laughs) They're a mess. It looks like someone vomited different coloured paint all over a canvas. They're so different. And then I come back and edit with the final colour. And that's like, it's chaos then that's when you come back and have the control and edit out all the bits you don't like. Yeah, right. So it starts, so the, uh, the bottom layer is generally quite chaotic. Oh, it's complete chaos, yeah. Sometimes there's a bit of a plan, but I always like to leave it open to a bit of chance mm. or fortune. I think it's constraining having so much control. Or it can be laborious when you've, when you're working on a detailed painting to a very specific idea. I like having, leaving it open to chance as well. Is that sort of different to what you were doing with street art? Did you feel with the street art you were just painting to a particular idea? At the start, yeah, definitely. Because you would draw a sketch at home and then take it out and do a version of the sketch, but also I found sometimes I liked the sketch better. Yeah. You know what I mean? The immediacy of it, and then you're doing a replication of this little, yeah. I know. You know what? I was at the Picasso yesterday, and I saw this little sketch. Um, I can't remember who it was by. Actually, it wasn't Picasso. And I, and I was so drawn to it compared to the big painting that was finished next to it. Yeah. It, the, I, I know exactly what you mean. And yeah. just and seeing, I don't know, just seeing the, like, the, the um, indentation of the pencil onto the paper as well, you know. I think there's something to that, definitely. Yeah. And Francis Bacon talked about, like, the first stroke he put on paintings was always the most that had the most power and i think there's really something to that as well that's the first gesture that's got the power and then once you add 500 different brush strokes that first one loses its impact Mm. what do you find with your work that is it um are they are they works that take um not a long time but that they take several layers to finish Yes. I mean, sometimes I work on them for years and I'll do something to one, hate it, 
turn it around, put it in the storeroom, pull it out two years later, can keep working on it or completely change it. So I've got a storeroom full of half-finished paintings. Sometimes I change the colour of them. Sometimes I'll do a grey. It's not quite right. It'll be blue. Go back to grey. Black. Sometimes I've had several layers. Sometimes I nail them first shot. The more experience. Yeah, the longer you've been doing it, the easier it is, I suppose, to know what's going to work and what's not and when to stop. What I really like about your work is that the variety of, of um, materials that you use, because you've also, you know, you use oil stick, oils, acrylics, gold leaf, um, my, is it mica pla- flakes? Yeah, mica flakes. I've never heard of that before. I had to look it up. But, but it gives it like a luster, does it? Is that, what is that? The mica flakes are like little black, tiny little black rocks. And I get them in, or oh, actually they come in different colours. There's like silver ones, bronze. I like getting as many colours and textures and little points of interest. And sometimes I'll put like little opals in them or a piece of zebra stone or different objects. I, I just like something that's intriguing to look at. What's that? Hmm, there's a shadow coming off that bit or that bit's reflecting. It's an opal. Yeah. Just things that are interesting to look at. Do you get many commissions? I haven't been doing commissions for the last several years. I just don't have the time. Like My paintings take so long that between solo shows and trying to make work for prizes and whatnot, I just don't really have the time for them. And sometimes, yeah, I did used to do several commissions but they would always or people would always throw in little requests or certain colors and it would just just any little limitation like that would throw me off a little bit because I knew I couldn't just do what I wanted yeah so I just found it easier to just do work put it in shows and just let people take what they want yeah i think that's much better i would never ask a i, I don't think i would ever ask a painter to do a to, to do a commission because it just feels as you say so limiting and stultifies you you know i think i mean they're fine if it's just like we want something three by two meters do what you want yeah they don't say you my couch is this color and <laughs> yeah or can you put can you work our cats into it somehow <laughs> Which I've had. Did you do it? No. I just want to do what I want. Like, just, that's what I do when I get tattoos or, you know, buy artwork. You just choose an artist and you let them, you know. Would you ever design your own tattoo? No. No. Way too permanent. (laughs) 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 Oh, it's best left to the professionals. We were talking before about influences and you were telling me about this amazing influence, which was the artist Ramelsey in New York. You know, you referred me to a YouTube video and he was an unbelievable artist um, that you actually met yourself in New York. He's like basically almost impossible to describe, so I'm going to put a link on the yeah, show notes. So you have to go to YouTube and have a look. But he's like a hip-hop artist, painter. Um, Theoretician, yeah. mathematician, future. Like he, he had his own whole treatise of gothic futurism. And he used to wear like these costumes. and Full-bodied costumes. Some of them had pyrotechnics coming out of them speakers yeah masks people had never seen his face or something was that right i don't think people really saw his face until after he passed away and then people sort of he was very mysterious and didn't want his identity to be he was very protective while he was alive i think it's only after he passed that you can see way more images of his face but before then you couldn't really you couldn't i didn't know what he looked like before i met him I'd only seen him in costume. And so tell me how he, I mean, you have told me, but can you tell the listeners um, what, uh, how, how you got in contact with him? 
we were friends on MySpace and I, I always admired him from early days in graffiti and I just gravitated towards people like that who created their own worlds and it was more than graffiti. And we were mates on MySpace and I just said, Ram, I'm coming to New York. Can I see your work in any galleries or your studio? And he just said, come over. And it was the most intense six hours of my life. And what advice, because you did tell me that he changed your perspective at that point um, about your career and what you were going to do. This was before you decided to go to VCA, wasn't it? Yeah. What was he talking to you about? Well, he just, one of the first things he said to me was just like, how's your career going, boss? And I thought, how is my career going? Like, it's not really going. I'm working as a graphic designer and doing as much art as I can, but... And then he was showing me catalogues of these shows that he had in Europe in 79, 81, museum shows. And I was like, wow. That was before I was born. This dude was having museum shows. And it just really gave me a kick up the arse. And didn't he know John Michelle Basquiat as well? Yeah, they were frenemies slash mates. I think they had a bit of a love-hate relationship, but... So that's, yeah, I mean, meeting somebody, like, he was larger than life, basically. He was intense, too. In person, like, without the mask, he was, like, intense. His eyes were, like, he was super friendly, but, yeah. like, intense, dude. Yeah. And he had science, the science fiction channel on the TV the whole time. He was playing me rap songs, rapping along with them, pulling out books, pulling out this. He was stenciling on the floor throwing photos on the ground, painting, rapping. And I was like, man, this guy is, like, living it. Like, and the costumes, he had them all lined up. And all the costumes have, they're all different characters who have different stories in his universe. And there's a whole theory behind the whole thing. Like, he created worlds, which was, which just blew my mind. So, like, a sci-fi type of thing? Yeah, gothic futurism, that was his style. Right. But he was also, like, really into monks and the Renaissance and Brahms, symphonies. It was like a wormhole. And to think that he took time to just, like, meet some kid from Australia, from MySpace, and, like, actually like really changed my life and like super generous like what a cool thing to do hope i can do that for some kid from some other country someday and i really was interested in the video that you did in 2011 which was based on that police interview were you arrested could you say you're arrested it was a little bit more than arrested it yeah. was raided, arrested, charged with several things. At 17. That yeah. is a nightmarish scenario. And I think you did this great video which reflected, like, the nightmarishness of it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which um, where you were sort of being interrogated by, well, I don't know, it, it was a bit well, interviewed by no, the police. it's interrogation. Yeah. So yeah. Did you have a parent there or anything? Like in the real thing, not the video, obviously. God, I must have. I can't remember. I know for one of them I didn't. But I knew knew to say nothing. Mm. I knew to say no comment. Mm. Well, I'll just quickly describe the video. I'll put a link in the the show notes. But it's great video because you're dressed in this costume. So it's a bit reminding me of Ramelsey, actually, which is what I presume is where you got it from. Uh, so with that mask and everything, and you've and the, your voice is distorted, so yeah. you sound like an alien. There's a voice changer in the mask. It was the idea was that that it was a ceremonial painting costume that was that hid your identity. I mean, yeah, very sim. Like you can see where I got the idea from. Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically, you're in this sort of like a really 
um, awful room with really scary lighting and everything and we don't see the police officer we only see you and the police officer interrogating you with questions and you're just saying no comment no comment but in this sort of disguised voice um that must have been cathartic for you to do that it must have been a traumatic experience the actual you know real experience yeah it was bizarre because i remember when they brought me back to the station to the graffiti unit like they announced my tag and who was like that they'd got me and like everyone sort of cheered it was so weird and then they took me into the cell like and of course they make you take your belt and shoelaces off so my pants were sort of falling down and then all these cops were cheering that they'd got me but um it was weird. I was 17 and I probably deserved it, to be honest. I was making a bit of mischief. So it was from basically graffitiing property. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that was like 15 years down the track or something you did the video. Yeah. And I just had the tape. That's it. Oh, so you, you used the real tape of the police interview. So that was the real police officer. Yeah. Didn't get his permission, but I mean... <laughs> Well, I thought it was a really powerful work, actually. Um, the suit was so grotesque, you know, and everything. But I don't know, it felt like Kafka almost, you know. Yeah. It was a weird experiment. I was at VCA. So it was for, oh, it was for your master's, was it? Well, I did it during that time, yeah. Yeah, okay. And how did you find it doing a master's degree? Oh, I loved it. It was, it was re- I found it really hard and I hadn't written an essay since high school so I found the theory side like quite challenging but it was so worth it and it was great to push yourself and to think about why are you doing what you're doing where do you fit in in the context of what everyone else is doing critically and also to learn to speak about your work yeah I think that must be one of the hardest things it was so hard and the teachers were quiet and hard like my first couple of essays were not the best but by the end of it I got better and they really pushed me and I could see how much that I had grown from that process Mm. and I think as an artist you've got to be able to well it helps if you can talk or write eloquently about your work I think or I think that's right when it gets to your level because people want to read and they want to know what's going on, even though I reckon 20 years ago it wasn't like this. But now, you know, people want to know about the artists more. They want to know what they're thinking and behind, what, what the story is behind the art because your art is very intriguing, I've got to say. So I was really interested to read about it, you know. So you sort of do have to have that education or at least learn it somehow. I mean, I don't think you need to necessarily need to have a master's, but mm. to learn how to do it, you know. It's definitely helped me. How does your day, your routine look? Do you have a routine? Yeah, it's basically nine to five, as close to that as I can get, including looking after a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. But basically, nine, I don't know, like Did, a job. What about when you, before five. you had a child? Was it was it different? Oh, it was probably longer hours when I was preparing for a show, sometimes like 16, 18-hour days. Yeah. But I love it. And I sometimes get so excited at night that I work myself up and can't go to sleep because I'm just so excited that I can come down here and paint. And so what, do you ever have problem getting started? Do you procrastinate at all or anything? Not really. Usually I'm pretty raring to go. But, I mean, in the last couple of years I have a bit. Because you've got a child, you mean, or? Yeah, just some personal stuff. Some, yeah, mental health things that have, like, that I haven't experienced before, getting down here and just being like, feeling lethargic, which Mm. I haven't, anyway, there's Mm. a hole. Mm. What helps with that, do you think? Meditation 
definitely helps. And exercise. Mm. Uh, and usually I'm pretty raring to get down here. Yeah. But also sometimes, yeah, sometimes you get in and it's overwhelming. You've got all these half-finished paintings everywhere. And you just wish you walked into a blank white cube. But there's all these paintings to finish. So this is when you, you, you're painting for a show. Yeah. Yeah. But generally, yeah, I mean, I can get pretty up and down preparing for a show. One day I'm loving it. The next day it's like, this is a disaster. I'm going to have to do something else. Plan B, plan B. And then, like, go home, have some food, have a sleep, come back in the next day. It's a, like it's a it's a battle sometimes. Yeah. Well, it's often the case with the with you know as people say with paintings, you know that stage halfway through where it's really ugly. If you're if you've got a few of those happening in the studio, that must be really quite uh, difficult. Oof. Yeah. Um, it's bad enough when you've got one. Yeah, it's good once you once you knock out one for a show. It's always a sigh of relief, and then. Okay, onwards and upwards. And do you feel with a show, when you've got a new show coming, that you've got to have a whole... Do you feel like it's got to be a new body of work, that it's got to somehow be different? Do you ever feel like that? Is there a pressure? Yeah, there is. I mean, that's something I suppose most artists... It's part of the job, I suppose. Yeah. You don't want to do something too different because... It might look completely random and experimental and what is he doing? But I think it helps sometimes when you think of them like albums or I I keep going back to music, but if you think of different art or films, series, directors, musicians, composers, concept albums, the way they have transitioned through their career you know, you've got the same voice, but you're saying something different with that voice. Yeah. Do you have somebody that you would get, you'd bounce off on that for those sort of things? Yeah. The galleries, definitely. Jan and Sophie give really good advice about that sort of thing. Because also you can get in your own head too much. Like people, I've been doing the same thing, been doing the same thing. And then, like, Fred, it's fine. Keep doing what you're doing. You're progressing. They're different. And then when you sort of look back over the years and you look at each show, even if you are, if they are recognisably your work, you can sort of see the progression and some of them look way different. Yeah, definitely. Well, I felt like that too when I look back at your work, at your whole oeuvre, you know. But uh, it's very hard. I think you do need. I think you do need external um, opinions that you trust. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and sometimes my wife comes down and just says, "Shut up. That's fine. That's awesome." Or, "No, leave that one out." She knows me. She knows my work. She knows what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, she works in the arts. Um, I mean, in film. Yeah. In films, doesn't she? Yeah. So she would have a pretty good eye, I would have thought. She does. And yeah. it's sometimes you just need that someone just complete blank. Yeah. I should mention her name, Bridget O'Shea. Yeah. yeah. A major driving force, help, inspiration. So how do you find juggling parenting? I mean, it's tough. Like I was saying to you a second ago, having a baby and COVID, it must have been hard. Yeah, it was. And... Some people are fine. Some people are like, having a kid's the best thing you'll ever do. And it was just so hard. And, I mean, it's obviously incredible, but I found it super challenging and, like, emotionally draining. But also I love that it's not just about you anymore. There's something really relieving about that, to get out of your own head. Yeah. I love that. Oh, now I read, I did read an article 
where they asked whether you what you would do if you weren't a painter, and you uh, you're probably joking, but you said oyster farmer. Yeah, oh, I've got so many fantasy jobs that I would do. Garbage man is one of them. Yeah, oyster farm that would be ideal. Why wouldn't oyster farm be ideal? Oh, I don't know. Just going along, checking the oysters, checking the levels. I don't know, just the opposite of art, being some sort of marine biology assistant, having some sort of purpose that's not got just the opposite of art, like being a, some sort of stock trader. Like I have all these insane fantasies about what I would do if I wasn't an artist. <laughs> some of them are quite weird. Well, I suppose you're taking out that you're taking out that that element of having to come up with something creative every day. I know what you mean. Yeah, I think there's some saying like finance people dream about being artists, and artists dream about having money. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I really liked um, what, that I saw online was that digital work that you did called Samizdat. Is that how you say it? Same as that. I think so. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. All right. It's from a novel called Infinite Jest, which is about an entertainment so mesmerizing that people, once they see it, they are glued to it and they die watching it, basically. The image is that captivating. And I just, I just always imagined what it would look like. And then during lockdown, I had time. On my computer, I thought, what about if I make a painting out of animated GIFs and just do layers and layers and layers of them? And you know how they're sort of mesmerising, how they keep looping? I know, because there was like dozens of them just all overlapping. It's just this sort of assault. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so relevant to today. Well, we're just sort of seeing gifts and, you know, bombarded with imagery. But there's something about it that's alluring. Yeah, there's something about them that are dreamy. I think the gifts, the looping, floating little figures, yeah, I like them. It was just an experiment. And is, would you look at that as like an NFT? Is that what the idea is? Or I did do them as an NFT, as an experiment, but I'm not like into nfts or right and so would you are you you didn't put it on instagram or anything because i don't think i saw no not yet i will i think i will what do you what do you what do you think of instagram and social media i love it yeah i just love that friends and the whole world is it you as an artist like just being able to like i know how bad and addictive it is for some people but just the world and images at your fingertips scrolling through your friends from all over the world seeing what they're doing i love it yeah it's amazing i've got to agree and also like i grew up you know i was born in 1980 so i've sort of seen it come and advance to what it is and it's just so cool and how do you use it do you use it every day like do you look at it all the time no i should get back on there more i've had a big break from it because it was taking up a bit too much time. And when I'm preparing for a show, I'm just, I, I don't even look at phone or emails. Oh, really? Or, so yeah. you just cut, cut everything out? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Sometimes I should open bills and pay them and <laughs> pay parking fines and whatnot. And I won't look at emails for weeks. But I'm just so, like, mission-focused that, just like if I start looking at my computer and check an email and then, you know, rabbit hole. Yeah, totally. Three hours later and then I'm in a bad mood because I've seen something on there that, yeah, so I just mm. studio lockdown and it's focus. Yeah. Well, I think YouTube can be a real problem in that way as well. I mean, Instagram's bad enough, but YouTube... And it's also a little bit disturbing when you get suggested videos and you sort of think, oh, I think I've been watching too much of that. Yeah, and then you like all the suggested stuff. <laughs> so what's coming up? Have you got a show next? So you've got two gallerists. You've got Jan Murphy and Sophie Gannon um, in Melbourne and Brisbane. So do you find that you do one a year, like you go like sort of basically one yeah, each year? Yeah, that's how it's been working for the last four years. Oh, okay. I love them. 
they're such great supporters and it's just so good to after years of like looking for good galleries good representation it's just like uh, finally like i've got someone good in my corner who's really backing you and believes in you and yeah feel really lucky well, you were saying to me earlier that how you, you were sort of looking at all the names that you were putting down that were influencers and that a lot of them were women. And I can see that those two galleries are, are basically women. Yeah, I maybe stupidly didn't realise until I sort of looked at it all in a list. I was like, wow, all, all these women have like supported me and encouraged me, really like believed in me and given me my like best opportunities throughout the years from when i was 15 mary skepsy then eva eden giving me my first solo show then like lucy fagans from the design files and then jan and sophie and of course my wife like these are all the major like moments in my career i suppose i owe so much to them all well, Fred, thank you so much for having me here at your studio. I just love it. I just love looking at all your work on the walls. It looks fabulous. Um, and good luck with your future shows. Thank you, Maria. What a great artist. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fred as much as I did. Fred's next show is with Sophie Gannon Gallery in Melbourne in 2023 and you can see images of his work on the website talkingwithpainters.com as well as links to things we talked about in the show. I'll also be getting a video of Fred onto my YouTube channel so watch out for that too. And talking about the YouTube channel, I've uploaded a few videos since my last episode, interviews with the winners of the Win and Sulman Prizes at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. That was Nicholas Harding, who won the Win with his painting Eora, and Claire Healy and Sean Cadero, who won with their work Raiko and Shootin Doji. I also interviewed landscape painter Belinda Street in Newcastle last week and there's a video of her talking with me at her exhibition at Straight Jacket Art Space in Newcastle, which is a great collection of paintings centering around the alpine areas of Mount Wellington and Mount Kosciuszko. And that show is continuing until this Sunday, the 16th of October, 2022. And my conversation with Belinda uh, will be up on the podcast in early 2023. Thanks for listening today and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I like oil sticks because they're hard to control. Oh, really? Yeah, I like things that are a real battle. The fact that you have to really rein in and oh, that I just there's something about fighting with something and solving problems and it being difficult but it's oil paint and it's in a solid form and you sort of have to smear it on and it's quite difficult to work with. But also there's lots of tricks and you can smudge it together. You can mix it easily. I I like things that are hard. Like I like things that are a battle that you have to fight with.